Welcome to Recovery Uncovered, brought to you by Whiskey and Milk. I'm Adam Clark. I'm Sarah Sellers. As recovering addicts, we're on a mission to fight the stigma against addiction. And inspire those struggling by sharing the experience of real people in recovery. Because addiction doesn't discriminate. Behind every struggle, there's a person with a story. This This is Recovery Recovery Uncovered. Uncovered. Attention, now arriving at your destination. The last house on the block. Welcome, everyone, to our podcast. Um, Adam, what are we doing? Why Uh, are we here? (laughs) So we're here for one reason, to share stories of people in addiction recovery and to break down the stigma that people have against it. How do we want to do that? Uh, Well, first, we're going to tell everybody a little bit about ourselves and how we got to uh, be caring about addiction or why that's important or why that matters in our lives. Yeah. So tell me, Sarah. Oh, did you first I was going to ask you first. Ooh, I was going to ask you, you first. I um, I got sober when I was seventeen, and if there comes a day where that's not true anymore, nobody blame anybody but me. That's just a disclaimer. Um, don't blame any other program or anything. Or, um, but but I've, God willing, been sober almost seven years in December, um, and I was a, a bad kid. Yeah, really bad kid and a very sad and dramatic and um, demanding child. And that just all seemed fine and well until I started uh, dabbling with alcohol and drugs. And um, and then it wasn't so cool anymore. Um, What age were you when you first started messing around with it? I want to say I was 12 or 13. And I was going through medicine cabinets, trying to Google everything, figuring mm. out if it would work for me or not. Um, yeah. And then I, I found some really cool friends and they took me out and let me drink. And it started with the weekends, progressed pretty rapidly into every week. And then I'm lying to my friends like, I don't have any, you know. Um, and I've got all of it that I need for me and I'm trying to like figure out how to get around my parents and how to hide the tracking devices my dad is putting on me. And, um, my parents don't trust me. My teachers were scared of me slash disappointed depending on what teacher, Mm -hmm. um, my brother was definitely over uh, us <laughs> he was like you're not my sister anymore yeah you know like that we'd have those kind of outbursts constantly and I really had nothing but for some reason I still felt like I have everything I need in life mm. and more so I'm looking around at everybody who is doing well um making great grades in high school has a really good support system um and I'm, I'm truly thinking in my head, you guys are so lame. Like I, like I'm living the best life. Meanwhile, I'm like tipping over in my chair in math class. It's funny how that works. Like right. the people who I thought were really lame in high school are now like doctors and lawyers and like really yes. have their shit together. And I'm like, so this is what happens when you get your shit together at 14 instead of 25. Right. And, and I like, I'm gravitated towards those people now too. Mm-hmm. I love the people that just don't really care about drinking. They they like book clubs because I want to be in a book club now. Yeah. Isn't that weird? Um, I was in a book club. It's it's fun. Like, you know, normal people stuff is really fun. Um, I, and I, I didn't realize that. I, I really thought that I was stuck in this depressing storyline for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know, there's this visual that I have of me as a 17 year old girl running in quicksand. And then you like look to the side of you and we're in an airport at those, not an escalator, but it gets you there faster, flat escalator. And they're, they're just walking, but making it so much faster than I am. And I'm the one sweating and I'm the one, um, crying and in pain. And then I see everybody else in my life just kind of coasting and making it. Um, and it's, 
really exciting for me to be on this podcast and be able to talk about this because I'm, you know, able to do a lot of stuff with adolescents now and I hear it all the time and I hear it and I'm just, I'm just taken right back to how that felt. And I need to remember how it felt. Mm -hmm. Um, because I forget that my life is so good that it could be pretty bad. Um, yeah. It yeah. kind of seems like lifetimes ago sometimes when I look at it. Like yeah. sometimes it feels like, man, that was just yesterday. Like I just got out of rehab and then another part of my brain, it's like, that was a completely different human. Like that, that was a whole lifetime ago. Yes. Yeah. But I really love what you said about, you know, getting to work with adolescents. Cause to me, like that's the most beautiful part of recovery is that, in sharing my story, hopefully somebody else can avoid some of the pain that I walked through or I can help them walk through it. Right. Um, having been there already. Right. And even at this point, I think for both of us, I feel a connection with families and friends of addicts. Absolutely. I, I feel such a deep, you know, and it, I didn't walk my mom's path. I, I don't know what that's really like, but I, I do have the memories of seeing her um, broken mm-hmm. because of me. Yeah. 100%. Because she didn't know if I was going to come back home. She didn't know if I was ever going to um, make it by myself. If I was ever, I mean, let alone go to college, get a job be successful, but like, you know, just, is she, is she going to make it? You know, am I going to get a call, um, tomorrow night because it's Saturday and we don't know where she is. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I basically, I was, um, I was, spranked into going to treatment. I'm trying to think of they the best you. word. They tricked me. Yeah. Um, I surprise mean, intervention. Yeah. Yeah, literally. I mean, I, I told them that I'm ready. It had come to a point where I'm like, I'm ready. I just need a breath. I'm just gonna like, um, go, you know, get all this stuff out of my system and then I can restart. Mm-hmm. I thought, okay, I'm just going to restart on it. I'm a really good drinker. I'm a good drug d- taker, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's a I'm shame just, when you're good at drinking and doing drugs, then you got to quit, you know? Cause I was all star level. Like, absolutely. Could have gone pro, but yeah, had an injury had to retire early. You know, it was like my goals and goals in life. Uh huh. Yeah. It's like, I'm going to make it big. I'm still going to have a great life. Um, and that just didn't happen. But I, I ended up in an adolescent rehab and, um, and I was just, I was just blown away by all the people I was around. Cause I'm like, I'm not as bad as them. Mm. And I went to my counselor. I'm like, I'm not as bad as them. Started looking for the differences. Right. I'm like, they're insane. I set up a meeting and I told her, I think I need to go somewhere else. Um, I'm not in the right place. And she's like, mm, you look just like, um, sometimes you look worse, you know, I bet that one stung <laughs> so bad, so bad. Cause I just, I definitely, and there's something we talk about in recovery that we can't differentiate the truth from the false anymore. And I mean, I really was so stuck in my lies that I thought I was doing so good. Mm-hmm. I thought I was doing great. Um, and even still to this day, I I have a best friend who walked that whole, um, path with me and she will tell me things that I've done and I don't remember them. Yeah. You know, I don't remember treating people that way or, um, being that obvious. It's just, it's amazing to me. Um, but yeah, flash forwarding to now, I, I love my life. Yeah, it's pretty cool, isn't it? It is. And people trust me to do stuff. Yeah, like I can babysit. Part. Yeah. We can babysit. Mm-hmm. We've we uh we can open up bank accounts. Yeah, like my job trusts me with a key. Like yeah. my family members, I have keys to their house and like I mean, I don't live in the same place as them anymore, but like, you know, I would take care of the family dog when, you know, my parents went out of town or stuff that they never would have let me do, especially towards the end of my addiction. Cause like, if you had a medicine cabinet, I was going in there. Right. Like, right. You you didn't need to leave me alone near any sort of painkillers, near any sort of cash, uh, anything pawnable that I thought you wouldn't miss. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I was going to take it. Yeah. And it, it's crazy. Um, 
because there was no remorse at the time. Like that, that really indicates to me the level of selfishness and self-centeredness that, that comes to play when you're dealing with untreated alcoholism or untreated addiction. Um, because it's, it's not like I thought about it and I didn't care. It's like the thought just was never even in my mind. Like, right. This is in front of me. I need this because I need to feel this. So I'm taking this. Yes. Um, and it was never like, oh, well, you know, the, the only thought that I ever had about, you know, whether somebody would miss it or not was if it would lead to me getting caught. Mm. You know, that was the, the only type of thinking I did other than I want this and I need this. Right. Right. I, I, that's such an important visual for me now, how many things are between me and a drink Mm -hmm. because it was just an automatic response that I'm going to drink. If I'm happy, if I'm sad, if I'm lonely, if I'm heartbroken and you know, that is just what I'm going to. Anything could have been an excuse. Yes. Yes. Anything. And it's like, I want to say that the worse my life got, the more reasons I had to drink, but I was going to find something anyways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't need a reason. I'd fabricate one. Right. Yes. Yeah. So when did you get sober, Adam? Uh, so I got sober in July of 2018. Um, yeah, I started drinking and using a little bit later on than you did. I, uh, I had like a couple drinks in high school. I remember I had like three Smirnoff, uh, Ices, the green apple flavor on prom night. And I was like, Ooh, turn down for what? Like, Wait, really? Yeah. Like that was the extent of my, my drinking in high You're school. You're never going to forget that drink. Yeah, probably not. No. Um, and, and I think I thought that I was like doing something. Yeah. Um, but you know, I went to, uh, went to college and like the first night there I got drunk the second night I blacked out and I smoked weed for the first time. And I don't think up to that point I'd had enough to really get the feeling that I was looking for. But, but once I, you know, once I got that relief is the Mm -hmm. best way I can put it, because, you know, growing up, even before I started any of the drinking or using, like I always felt different. Um, you know, I come from a, a a broken home, um, and my dad's a alcoholic addict. And so I've always had, had that feeling of just like, I'm different. I grew up going to this private school that my family couldn't afford, but my grandparents paid for it. And so I was like the poor kid at the rich kid school. Um, and I just always felt out of place in that, that first night where I got drunk. And then that second night where, you know, I drank and smoked weed. It was like, yeah, I could finally take a big deep breath. I wasn't this outsider. I was just a part of the crowd. And, and that's what I was always looking for. Um, you know, when, when I started, it was like, okay, this is what I want to do forever now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's what I did. Like I went straight to full on addictive behavior where I was pretty much from the first night I got drunk, drinking every night of the week. Um, there might've been a couple nights where I wasn't drinking, but I was definitely smoking every day. Um, and then it, it just rapidly progressed for me. Like I went from being, uh, in high school, not the top, top of my class, but like a B student, uh, had a solid ACT score, almost a full ride to go to college, uh, to, I had a 0.0 GPA my first semester. Mm-hmm. Cause I just didn't care about class. Like class was in the morning and that's time for sleeping. Cause I stayed up all night. Right. Um, And like, I kept telling myself, you know, like, I'm going to do something different. Um, And so, you know, people who identify as, you know, alcoholic or addict um, would all say that, like, there's a point where you you lose the choice. Um, And I feel like it happened for me very quickly because, like, I I did want to go to class. I did want to pursue this degree and have this career um, because I wanted to make a lot of money. I was always so worried Mm -hmm. about status because I felt like I never had any. Um, but I just, I couldn't do it. Like the drinking and the drugging was, was very rapidly more important and it progressed from there for me, you know, over the next several years, like I, I did four semesters at three different universities, one fake semester that I took student loans out for and never enrolled in class and I 0.0 GPA every single one of them. And it's not that I don't have the intelligence to do it. I just, I wouldn't go like, yeah. You know, I moved back in with my mom to go to community college at one point. 
and I would get up, get dressed on time to go to class. I would drive to campus and then I would sit in the parking lot and get high for a couple hours until my class was scheduled to be over. Because at that point, mom had a copy of the class schedule because obviously Adam can't be trusted to go to class. And uh, they thought that I was doing the thing. And, uh, you know, I, I like I learned how to to do very basic Photoshop so I could fake my transcripts at the end of the semester because I had 0.0 GPAs and I brought my mom a, a nice report card with A's and B's from community college. And she's like, oh, my boy's getting it. I'm like, well, he's getting high. That's about all he's getting. Yeah. Um, but I bet your intention was you were really going to get those grades. Yeah. In the future. Yeah. Just, just not this card, but in the future. That's what it always was for me. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm always going to do it the next time. I'm going to do better tomorrow. I'm not going to do this again. Um, But for me, like, the more I put things off, the the worse the anxiety got around it. Yes. Like, when you've been getting high in the parking lot at college for the first three weeks, like, it's pretty awkward to walk into class for my day one, but everybody else is on week four. Right. Um, And, like, each day that it went on, it was, like, more and more, like... I can't go in there. You know, like at this yeah. point I've made my bed. I just got to lie in it. We're going to restart next semester. Yeah. Um, and then I would start the same pattern over and over again. Um, you know, at some point after, after all that, I figured like it's probably time to take a break from school because this isn't working out. Um, started into the, the restaurant industry as a server, um, you know, eventually became a bartender and that like, just rapidly uh, sped up my decline. So I'm grateful for it nowadays because it brought me to rock bottom, I think, quicker than if I'd been doing some other type of line of work because I didn't have to go further than the kitchen in the back of house to get what I, I needed to get. Yeah. Um, and anybody who's worked in the restaurants know, like, that's kind of a party scene, um, at least for a good majority of them. Like, you get off at 9, 10, 11, everybody's hungry. You haven't ate yet. Everybody wants to drink to relax. So like everybody goes to the bar and I didn't have to be at work till 4 PM. So like I could stay at the bar as late as I wanted to, you know, the, the job perfectly fit the lifestyle. Um, but it also put me in a place to be introduced to other harder substances. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't even really remember the first time I did cocaine, but I know the bar it was at and I know the bathroom stall I was in. Um, And it was the same thing with me with with cocaine. Like every substance I tried, I did it, I liked it, and I needed more. Um, And so like I very rapidly went from like, yeah, we'll do a little blow here and there, like just on the weekends to like, well, I mean, we're going to drink. So like I need some blow so I can drink more to like, all right, maybe I should start selling a little bit so that I can afford to buy more so that I can have some for during the day. Cause you know, I'm hungover, So I need it for my shift too. So like all of a sudden I'm buying like an eight ball or more of blow a day, selling a little bit here and there doing it. And like the people who sell cocaine, they're not the people you want to be hanging around with. So I'm just putting myself with worse and worse crowds. Um, for a good cause. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I needed you that know, Coke. You do. And I don't think like, I mean, it's you can't understand unless you have it. Yeah. And and I, I do think that people can be educated on addiction. People can be very familiar, um, especially those that are affected directly being their family member or a friend. But to, in my mind, as I'm listening to you. Maybe to someone, this sounds totally insane. In my head, I'm like, that's really smart. You need to sell so that you can get more. And, yeah. then, and then you'll meet those people and they'll have it all the time and you get more contacts. I mean, it's networking. And that's, that's what how we call I felt. it. Yeah. Like, I felt like, all right, so if I can get this guy to introduce me to his plug, then I can start buying more at a better price. Then I'll be able to afford to sell more of it and keep more of it so I can do more. And I always had these grand schemes of like somewhere in here, there was going to be profit. Yeah. And we never got to profit. (laughs) What? Yeah. I, I'm not thinking, okay, I'm listening and I'm tuned in, but I wasn't thinking about profit the whole time. See, I thought that like I was going to be El Chapo. Oh, you know, I really? grew up watching Scarface and I mean, I didn't think I was going to be that hard, but like, I thought like 
you just gotta, you gotta get to where you have enough capital to get enough weight so that you can start making money. Cause like I was doing this little middleman selling like little small amounts (laughs) and then snorting up the rest of my product. So like I have to go back to work to get more money, to go buy some more, to sell some, like I never finished selling off part of a bag and had enough money to go back and re-up. Oh. Like, if I had, I was the shittiest drug dealer ever to deal drugs. They say don't do this yeah. for a reason. Yeah, I was not, I was I'm not like cut crying. out for it. You thought you were about to bank out. I did, you know, and it just, it never got there. You have to sell apple juice to bank out. And then even then, you yeah. know, you're just not going to be responsible enough, most likely. I just couldn't do it. No. Well, I I mean, I did the same type of like the same type of insanity. I was really positive that if I smoked enough pot, I could do so well on, on the, uh, ACT because, (laughs) because I, I, I kept, I was like hyping myself up the day before ready to smoke and then go in because I'm thinking, okay, I, it's going to, it's going to make things more exciting because when I would be on anything typically i'm like looking at my tiles in the bathroom and i'm like these are so interesting how are they made how do people do this and so i thought the same thing was going to happen at the act it didn't and i passed out and it's (laughs) against the rules to wake you up because like the moderator or whoever they can't touch you um so i just slept through (laughs) one of them and i snore (laughs) i know (laughs) But I, okay. Yeah. That, that's my, I get the insanity. How'd you do on that ACT? Oh, I I did worse than the one before. So my dad was like, what's going on? Like, we got you a tutor, you know, is tutor not working out? No dad. I need some Adderall. No, she's not dad. Uh, Yeah. Literally. I need, I'm going to need to try something else. Yeah. Yeah. That's the insanity that we go through. I remember, I remember feeling that way with everything. Like I got to smoke before I do this or I need to like one of the semesters where I was going to school and like I was sort of trying more because one of my buddies had moved up there and like he smoked pot and stuff with me, but he's not one of us. Like he still got all of his shit done and, um, and we would like go to the library and we'd like, all right, we got to smoke a bowl before we go to the library. And we'd smoke like a couple bowls, play a game of FIFA or something. And then we'd snort some Adderall. And then we'd like go to the library, chief and cigs on the way, like yeah. killing Marlboro Lights. Yeah. And uh, we'd like get up and it was at University of Tennessee. So it's like a huge library. And so we'd go up to the whatever floor and like get all of our stuff set up, get logged in, ready for our assignments and like just be about to start studying and be like, you want to go smoke a cig, bro? Yeah, let's just, let's get, yeah, let's just get some breath f- yeah. fresh air. And so we'd like go back down, smoke a cig, get a coffee, get a snack, go back up. And I, they did some studying during it, but I just like, I, I never, I never could get there. Uh-uh. No, um, no, but that's that same insanity. Like I, I just, I felt like I had to be medicated in some form at all time. I remember when I was, uh, I was bartending at this restaurant and like at this point, like I'm getting messed up all the time. Like, um, Coke's not as heavy in the mix anymore because I started replacing Coke with painkillers. Um, yeah, I came in for a shift one time, like super hungover, and one of the guys in the restaurant, uh, like I was running back and forth to puke in the bathroom and he's like, dude, I got something that'll make you feel better. I was like, give it to me, whatever it is. And he held up a little yellow 10 milligram hydrocodone and it's like eight bucks. Like, Take all my money, what, whatever you need. If it'll make me feel better. He's like, no, it yeah. won't just make you feel better. You'll feel like Superman in like 15 minutes. Um, but anyways, like I was heavy on the the painkillers, you know, um, at this point in the restaurant, like it very rapidly went from like, let's take one when you're hung over to like, I need one a day. Now I need two a day. Now I need like one for breakfast, one for lunch, one for dinner. And then it was two, two and two. And all of a sudden I'm spending like a hundred bucks a day on painkillers and drinking and still smoking weed and doing this all like at work. 
I remember like looking around at the customers in this restaurant and being like, there's no way that anybody in here is sober. Like everybody's got to have some vice. Like, yeah, maybe they're not drunk, but like they're probably on like some sort of med or like, I, I truly thought that like there, there just wasn't any way that there was normal people capable of going through life unmedicated in, right. in any form. Well, um, especially when you get to that point, because then at that point you're taking this to soothe that because you did that the night before and you're mm-hmm. coming down and it's like compiled. So it's not even like, obviously being sober was horrible. It was just so horrible. I had to hear my own thoughts. I had to be present. Like I couldn't stand it. I hated myself. Um, And that's all I could ever think when I was sober. But especially when once I got into a pattern, well, then there is no sober. Like there, there's a headache, stomach ache, um, you know, blurry vision. Mm -hmm. There, there's no like truly sober. Yeah. You would, you would never get back to baseline. No, Uh, I relate to that. Cause like I would wake up hungover or in withdrawals or Mm -hmm. like sick from the night before. Like I, I didn't remember what it felt like to just like go to sleep normally and then wake up just like Mm, refreshed. Yeah, I don't remember prepping for bed. No. Those last few months. I just remember uh, waking up somewhere. <laughs> you know? Like, so, I mean, sometimes, like in my room, but like <laughs> the foot of the bed or something like that. Oh, I've woken up in some weird places. Yeah. I, I remember being at, at UT and, uh, you know, I, I pledged and joined a fraternity and I, I was in it for like one semester, so it barely counts. Um, but when I was up there, there was a fraternity called Farmhouse and it was like all the agricultural people, um, like all the ag majors and stuff. No, I was not in Farmhouse. Okay. All right. But one time I woke up on the couch in Farmhouse without my shoes. I still to this day don't know anybody who was a member of that fraternity, but I just woke up like, okay, I don't remember getting here and I didn't know where I was until like I left their house and walked out on the street and looked up and like, Oh, farmhouse. Um, and like, I I knew where the house was. And so I I walked back to my dorm and call it a day. Yeah. Went back to sleep. It was time for class, but it was, it was time for bed. Right. Um, and so, you know, I had to rest up to be able to do it again the next night. Um, but yeah, like I, I don't think that I, I actually went to sleep from like 20 to 25. Mm -hmm. I passed out or I blacked out and I I didn't wake up. I came to, um, cause it was always like the, that shock. Um, cause that was, you know, when I was passed out, blacked out, like I didn't have to feel me. That part of it was just as good as, as the drugs were until I woke up and I was back in reality and then it's like, all right, I got to medicate again. Mm-hmm. Um, just the the ups and downs. It always makes me think of that that scene in Wolf of Wall Street where he's talking about like I needed this to bring me up and this to bring me down and that to level me out because uh, that's the game that I was playing. It is, yes. Um, I, I just couldn't stop. All right, so okay, I've never done heroin, um, so I'm about to ask you questions. Okay, how did you start? So. The first time I did heroin, um, there was like a pill shortage in Jackson, Tennessee, where I'm from. Was that a real thing or was it just your buddies didn't have, well, they weren't texting you back? In my world, there was a pill shortage. Okay, they were texting you're... me back, but like at this at this point, I mean, I, I managed on painkillers for like three years before I switched to heroin. Okay. And so- I knew everybody who sold pills in that town. Like, not all of them. But so you should have been on the news. I had a lot of people that I knew. And, like, if this guy was out, then this guy always had something. Or I could call this other guy who did them, and he could find me something. And, like, the whole time that I've been taking pills, it had never gone more than, like, 12 hours where I couldn't find what I needed to find. And then this time it was, like, this guy was waiting on a script to come through, and this guy didn't have anything, and just... All of a sudden, every single one of my connections just didn't have pills, and like. So you don't think that they all just said "fuck you," Adam? At no, because the they time. they started selling me stuff again like a week later. Okay. Um, 
I mean, they could have, yeah. but like I was a pretty good customer. Yeah, I bet you were. Cause I did the same thing with pills that I did with Coke. Like, you know, I might've towards the end, I might've taken 10 a day, but that meant I would buy 50. Yeah. And so I'd go sell the other 40 to people that I worked with. So like they, they wanted me to come buy them and I'm sure they were ripping me off too. Like, I don't know what the good prices were for them back then, but I wasn't getting, getting really any crazy bulk discounts. Like, yeah, I wasn't that patient. I think I got ridiculous ripped off Yeah, because I was not, I was not about to do research. No, I just wanted it. You have it. Here's the money. Exactly. Um, but so that happened, like I couldn't find any painkillers. And then, uh, one of my guys, one of the Bubba's, there was like four dudes who I had saved in my phone as Bubba. This one was little Bubba. Um, he's like, man, I ain't got any pills, but I got that boy. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And, uh, he hit me with like a couple other er, slang terms. It's like, man, I got that smack. I got that dog food. Like, bro, tell me what you're talking about. Like, I, I don't understand here. And then finally, he's like, I got that hair on. And I was like, oh. And so I told him no at first. But at this point, it, like, it had been 24 hours. And then, like, another day had gone by. So we're at, like, 48 hours. And I was at the point where, like, I needed something in my system every six to eight hours. Or I was going to start going into withdrawal. Um, and so by the time that I was two days in without it, Coming up on three days, like, I was in full-blown withdrawals. You know, I was, like, hunkered over the the toilet in, in the bathroom, um, hot, cold, shaky, sweaty, the anxiety, the paranoia, the fear. It's like I couldn't even think straight. Um, like, the it's, it's the worst pain. I, I mean, I'm sure there's other stuff out there, but opiate withdrawal is not something that I, w- I would wish upon anybody because it's like psychological torture. Um, and then the whole time, like in the back of my head, like, I know what'll make me feel better. And like, I, I'd always told myself jokingly, like, I'm going to do heroin when I turn 80. Cause like you're 80, you know, whatever. If I die, I die. That's what, like I, I had that joke when I was younger. And so, uh, I, I just, I started 65 years too early, um, right. or 66 years, whatever it is. Um, I just have to say, I mean, I, we were like, I'm feeling very comfortable right up until like that moment because I'm realizing how many people right now are meeting somebody and this is how the, this is what a typical introduction to heroin is. Yeah. It was like, it was offered to me so casually. Casual. It's not a big deal. It's just a little bit better. Yeah. Like, that's what he told me. He's like, it's not what you want, but it'll make you feel better. It'll make you feel better. It's not too far away from what you were already doing. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. It's basically the same thing. It's just not pharmacy. I got told all this stuff because he was trying to sell it to me for like a day and a half before I eventually, you know, gave in and bought some. Right. And like the most insidious part of all of it was like, I bought $20 worth from him or a button, like a 10th of a gram. And, uh, you know, I, I snorted a little bit of it and like instantly the withdrawals were gone. The pain was gone. And not only was it gone, like I had been at the point with the painkillers where I was just on maintenance. Like I wasn't really getting that high, that warm wrapped in a glowing blanket feeling that, that I used to get from them. And I got the high better than the first high that I ever had off the painkillers. It was like going back to day one, resetting that tolerance. And then on top of that, that $20 worth lasted me three days. And so leading up to that, I was spending a hundred bucks a day. So I replaced like $300 over three days with $20. And so I remember like, it's so crazy to think of now, but I remember having the thought that like, Oh dude, this is going to save me so much money. I found my solution. Like I thought that I was going to be able to manage it. And it's crazy because I remembered starting with, with one hydro and then over whatever period graduating to like, all right, now I need 10 oxys. Mm. But I, it didn't even cross my mind like, oh, this is a slippery slope, Adam. The same thing's going to happen that happened with pills. It was just like, no, this is the answer. And that's exactly what happened. Like the first 20 lasted three days and then 
the next 20 might've done the same, but then very quickly it was like two days in a day. And then it was like, I needed one a day. And it was the same thing with the pills. Um, and like the, the thing it's weird to say now is that like, I'm really grateful that I got on heroin because it rapidly, uh, just rocketed me into to rock bottom because oh, I couldn't keep up. This is not a joke. Like I, I think this all the time about people. I'm like, screw up as fast as you can. Like I hope your life becomes hell as soon as possible. Yeah. Not in like, not in a, but if you know, you know. Yeah. It's not in a malicious way. No. It's like there's a certain level that you're going to reach where you either you end up dead, you end up in jail, or you finally had enough. The moment of clarity has to be clear enough. Yeah. Because I don't believe in rock bottoms anymore. After seeing our friends pass away, like that is rock bottom. Death is rock bottom. I understand why we say that phrase, but it is a moment of clarity for me. And I think I had a moment, I had moments of clarity in my life before I even started. Mm -hmm. You know, my family was very intentional telling me that this is a gene and it's very important that you pay attention to it. They weren't even doing the just say no campaigns in my face. They were sitting with me and talking to me about mm. what my genetic history is. Interesting. Um, and you know, still that was a mo that should have been a moment of clarity. If you stand out in front of a busy street, you're going to get run over. Yeah. Sarah. <laughs> and then I you go run out that street. Yeah. <laughs> I get run over. See, my experience was a little different. Like I didn't have that, that warning. Like my mom and my stepdad didn't drink. Um, like they would have a glass of a wine now or then, but like nothing crazy. Um, and so like their perspective was usually just like, yeah, just don't drink. Like don't do drugs. Yeah. And they never really experienced it. Um, you know, I, I think my, my dad, my biological dad had pressured my mom into smoking weed a couple of times when they were married, but like, that wasn't like her thing. She didn't, she didn't have the gene. She didn't have the ism, but then my dad full blown alcoholic and addict my whole life. And like, I thought my mom and my stepdad were the lame ones. Cause my dad would like, he'd, you know, run around and come back into town with a new Mercedes. And then he always had like the shirt with the right little emblem on it, you know, and he'd bring me the Ralph Lauren or the whatever I was into at that time. Um, and he always like had the, this little picturesque, like, um, facade that he tried to put on and it fooled the shit out of me as a little kid. And so like, I thought like, oh man, that's what I want to be like. Like, I want to drink, I want to party. Like my mom, my stepdad, they just don't get it. You know, they, they don't understand. They're just mm -hmm. lame Bible thumpers. And it's such the opposite view of what I have now. Like I look up to them so much more and respect them. And like, I had a, a conversation with my mom the other night where I was just telling her about all the different things that I thought were so stupid that now I'm like, yeah, like you were, you were really right. Like it's way better to be smart with your money. Like it, yeah. it's dumb to go get a car payment more than you can afford. Like yeah. all, all kinds of different stuff that I just thought was ridiculous and lame. Now I'm like, ah, oh my God. that makes so much Gold. more sense. Yeah. yeah. And now I'm like, dude, I want to be more like y'all and I want to be yes. nothing like, like that. Um, yes. but it was the opposite for me growing up. Yeah. There's a, um, in my I think it was a peer support training. One of the trainings I had to do recently um, talked about the number one, I don't want to phrase it wrong, so this isn't completely um, word for word, but what creates resilience in children, and they say having one safe adult relationship. Mm. Um, and I just like, I think about that now because I had way more than just one. Mm-hmm. And I, I like the quote that says genetics loads the gun environment pulls the trigger. Yeah. I just know that for myself, I can't blame it on one. Like it is not just genetics. It's not just my environment. Mm -hmm. um, and it's hard to tell. Like people don't, I, I think this goes back and forth a lot. What makes an addict? Yeah. We know, you know, we know what, um, 
what, what, how, why we self-diagnose, why this is one of the few diagnoses that you self-diagnose and, and why it's important to do that in order to get treatment or get help. Um, but I don't know. I, I know that I was, I had tendencies since I was a kid. Sounds like you did. I yeah. don't know, but <laughs> yeah, I did. I mean, like from the time I was very little, like the, the first time I found pornography, like I was obsessed. Mm-hmm. Like I remember getting in trouble at like, I don't know, nine or 10 because me and my, my stepbrother had like found out that if you typed in boobs.com, you would oh see God. boobs. And my dad had a printer. So we like just started printing stuff off. And then we had this little Fisher Price, like kids rolling suitcase with just like 150 pages of, of different nudes that we found by going to boobs.com or ass.com or, um, and like fried his computer with, had like this persistent pop-up where you'd like click out of it and then three more would spawn. And I just didn't know what to do. So I just turned off the screen and then he came back and turned the monitor on and just do, 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 you know, uh, Porn uh, everywhere, and but like from a super young age, you know, anything I found that gave me pleasure or that made me feel different, saying bad words, yeah, I, really saying bad words. I I've figured out bad words, and I said them all the time. Mm-hmm. I loved it. Um, sugar packets, <laughs> sugar water. I feel like we talked about this already. Yeah. But I, I mean, it's, it is. And I don't, I don't know that it even matters. Um, I think it was so interesting when we were prepping for this podcast and you were talking about, we we were talking about the purpose of our podcast, um, and the mission to get rid of the stigma or work on (laughs) minimizing the stigma or surrounding addiction. And, I'm, I'm thinking in my head, what stigma? <laughs> There's no stigma. Um, because I have a privilege today. I'm, I'm a, I'm, most of my friends are recovering addicts. Mm-hmm. I work in a mental health field. Um, I, one of my jobs is peer support. You know, it's, it's not, I don't, I don't have anyone coming up to me and saying anything bad about addicts or, you know, stay away from that. I don't, I don't experience that, um, that misunderstanding or just that, that lack of education. Yeah. I think it's really more ignorance in, in most cases than it is malice. Um, Well, and people might be hurt. I think that's a lot of it too. Like, um, you know, people who grew up with, a an addicted or an alcoholic parent, and especially the ones who grew up with a parent and then they lost that parent to addiction right. or that parent never got sober or they haven't talked to them in 20 years because whatever big explosive thing happened the last time they were together and they finally cut contact. Um, and so they never got to see how beautiful it is to see somebody recover. Right. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm not so involved in, in the mental health and recovery field like, like you are with work. And so, you know, I've seen a, a bunch of different perspectives on it. Um, and nowadays I'm completely open about all of my history. Uh, or I wouldn't be here talking about it on the internet. Yeah, same. Um, but there was several years of my recovery where like I was deeply afraid to share about it. Um, because I, I felt judged for it already. Like the, the people that I grew up with, like, um, and this is all on me, not on, on any of the people necessarily, but like people I grew up going to church with that like never drank or never did drugs. Like I I had this, this feeling of like, Oh, I am bad. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm, I'm worse than them. They're, they're better people. Um, and I think that happens with a lot of people because they just look at addiction as like, oh, that's just a moral failing. Like you're making a choice. You chose to get high the first time or you chose to take that drink. And we did like, you know, I can't deny that at all. Um, But what's interesting to me is like a lot of the science behind how that works. Um, You know, somebody who is an addict or an alcoholic, like, when we drink, it affects our brains differently than it does normal people. Um, and generally alcoholics and addicts have a a dopamine deficiency. 
And so you find that drug of choice, that drink that gives you that quick fix and makes you feel normal. And your brain starts to rewire itself. There's a part called your midbrain that like controls all the basic functions that you never have to think about. Like I have to pee, I have to go number two, it's time to breathe, I need some water. And your drug of choice can get added into that mix because it's, it's a dopamine fix. So the more you use, like it starts out as this innocent thing, like, yeah, I chose to drink. I chose to get drunk the first time. I don't know at what point I crossed the line, but there's a certain point where after X amount of uses, your brain starts sending those signals of, I need that drug the same way it sends those signals of you need to take another breath. And so like, Again, I don't know where that point is where we cross the line. Um, but at that point, like, it's like trying to hold your breath to make yourself pass out. Like, yeah. at a certain point, you're going <gasps> to gasp for air and breathe. And, and that's kind of what it felt like when I didn't have the drink or the drug in my system. It's like I'm holding my breath. And then <sighs> you get that breath yeah. and then you get that sigh of relief. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, I remember when I went into my inpatient, I was afraid that people were going to find out I was in treatment. Mm -hmm. And that was another one of those web of lies that I had created around myself and around my life that no one knows, Yeah, you know, no one knows that I'm a mess, that I'm messed up. Um, and everyone at my school knew Mm -hmm. everybody knew and I, I just, I did think they would judge me, but then for, in my case, shortly afterward, I'm like telling my mentor, I'm going to start a YouTube channel <laughs> You know, <laughs> at 18. I'm like, I'm yeah. going to tell the world. Um, yeah. I'm going to let them know and <laughs> take them through everything that I did to feel this way. Um, cause now it is so good. And I would do wish that there was any way for us to tell families and friends of an addict, you know, that they've got this much left and then they'll come into recovery. Yeah. And there is no way to do that. Mm -hmm. There is no way. um, There's no magic pill you can take. There's no quick fix. Because the people that I really thought were going to still be here are not here. Yeah. And then on the flip side, the people that I did not think would be here are here Mm -hmm. (laughs) like me. I did not think I'd be making it. Yeah. Like, I I don't think anybody thought that I was going to get and stay sober. No. um, Myself included. I remember like getting out of rehab and uh, going to this, this friend of mine's house with the girl I was dating at the time. And like, she was letting them know, like, you know, Adam doesn't, uh, Adam doesn't do anything. We don't need any drugs over there anymore. He doesn't drink. And uh, my friend's like, he, he doesn't smoke weed anymore either. He, he doesn't drink. He doesn't take pills. What the hell does he do then? Yeah. Like, that was my whole identity. Um, and like, I, I thought I had it so together, you know, and it goes back to what I was saying about like the, the status and the facade that, that my dad put on that, that I wanted to emulate. Like I thought because I had some Cole Hans on my feet and I was wearing a nice shirt that people looked at me, but then I look back at these pictures. I looked so nappy. Like the day that I, I went to rehab, I called my boss and I was like, Hey man, uh, I'm not going to be in for my shift tonight. And he's like, all right, what, what's going on? I'm like, uh, I'm going to rehab. And he was like, thank God. <laughs> like, yeah, he knew that I needed that bad. Yeah. Um, it's, it's like not a surprise that I have a problem. Yeah. It's a surprise that I'm doing something about it. I thought everyone was going to be like shocked. Yeah, like, I know. And then they weren't. Yeah. Like, I oh, was so disappointed. God, Adam's finally getting some help. Yeah. And then the next thing is whatever. <laughs> yeah. I don't care. You know, Mm -hmm. people that love maybe family and close friends, but cared, but people didn't care as much as I thought because the world actually doesn't revolve around me. Yep. You took the words out of my mouth. Yeah. I felt like it did. I felt like, like everybody in my hometown was looking at me. Like I, I even remember feeling that way. Like I've lived here in Mississippi for a little over two years now. And so when I moved here, coming up on like three years of sobriety at that time, I still remembered feeling that way to a certain extent, like, man, everybody in this town knows, 
but it's because I still wasn't open about it yet. Yeah. Um, and then like, as soon as I started being open about it and telling people, like I've had so many different people reach out to me that I, I grew up with, um, whether it's just like a comment on a Facebook post about hitting a, a milestone or, you know, something on, on one of my pages, like people that I wouldn't have thought being like, dude, I'm so proud of you. I'm so glad that you got sober. Um, and these are people that I thought would have like judged me for it or thought less of me. Um, yeah. and I think that's the the beautiful thing about being open about your recovery. Um, and the way that we're willing to talk about it is like a lot of people aren't willing to be that open about their struggles, their fears, their insecurities. And so it, it makes you a more inviting person. Like when you've heard me tell about all, all of my shenanigans of, of drinking and drugging, like all of a sudden you telling me about your anxiety, like it doesn't seem like as big of a thing. Like Adam just told me about stealing from his grandma to get heroin. Like yeah. I can say that I'm anxious. Being He's not going to judge me. person. Mm-hmm. for others finally. And, and that, that goes for people outside of recovery as well. Yeah. Because, you know, not being super open or at least not being selfish about it and just always going back to it. It's allowed me to relate to people on other levels because I'm not really the type of person that's going to sit there and talk about needlepoint with anybody. Yeah. Cause needlepoint doesn't get me high. Yeah. I and want to talk about the deep shit. Yeah, I know. But I'm like talking about needlepoint yeah. and talking about books and, you know, engaging in meaningful conversations with people that I would never talk to mm-hmm. if I was on my own mission. Um, and I'm so great. And I'm dating a guy that's not, has no idea yeah. <laughs> about, about addiction. No idea. And obviously we have very great conversations, you know, um, it's a beautiful thing. Look, I want to, I want to read out some of your comments. I think we've got a few, few more minutes. Can I, can I read these out, Adam? Yeah. This is from your Facebook. Um, absolutely hilarious. I'm just going to go through a few of them. These are top comments, by the way. Um, one person said, I'm going to be nice and not say their name because they're, they're learning and that's okay. Yeah. Um, first comment is it's a choice period. Cancer is a disease. Drinking is a choice. I know I used to be one. What do you think about that? You know, I, I think that like we were talking about earlier, it probably doesn't come from a place of malice. It comes more from a place of hurt. Like anytime that, that you see somebody get heated about something like that. Um, cause I remember that comment, like it was in all caps. Yeah. Um, and yeah. like it, it usually means that something that was said in that video pushed a button or it hit home somewhere and it disrupted whatever their regular views are. Right. Um, because that's, that's what we do. We get defensive when, um, I feel like I'm being attacked. And so, you know, like I said a minute ago, like the, the first drink, you know, is a choice, but for me, for a whole lot of other addicts and alcoholics, along with, you know, medical professionals, counselors, therapists, psychiatrists that I've talked to, like, there comes a point when there's, there's no longer a choice in the matter. Mm -hmm. It's not just as simple as the old Nancy Reagan, just say no. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't think it's, uh, again, out of, out of hate or anything like that, but I think it's just a lot of people are ignorant to it before I got sober. Uh, I didn't give a damn what sober people were doing and I didn't care about people in recovery because I thought that they were lame because like I was wanting to get high. Right. And even like before I started drinking or using, I had a different viewpoint on it. Um, you know, like now if I see a homeless man on the sidewalk with a brown paper bag, I'm like, man, I wonder what his story is. Yeah. I wonder how he got here, what he's been through. I wonder if there's something I can do to help. Um, but before I was like, oh, look at that dirty drunk. Mm-hmm. Like, and it was out of ignorance. Yeah. Um, and so I like to believe that, that that's the case for a lot of people. I'm sure there's some where it's just, you know, pure hate or malice or some of it could be trolling right. or whatever, but. Well, with this person, I thought it was interesting that they said I used to be one. Um, And this is a really good 
question to bring up. You know, what's the difference between someone that can't stop by themselves and someone that can? And, um, and I don't, I don't know the medical opinion on that. I'm not going to attempt (laughs) to even read something from the medical opinion just in case uh, I don't know what I'm talking about, but, um, I, I do know from other individuals, I know that there's a difference between addiction and binge drinking and mm-hmm. binge using and those that go out on benders. But then their next thought when they wake up isn't, how do I get back to that? It's like, dude, I messed up. Yeah. Like, I've got to get it back together. Um, I've got to, I'm, I'm just going to, let me, let me, let me write my wrongs right now. Cause that's not what I'm thinking when I wake up after I've just gone out and now I'm hungover. You bet I'm thinking, how can I get more? Um, yeah. And I think, I think that there's people like that who are binge drinkers and binge users who probably view like recovery as weakness because like if you're a binge user and you can go do an eight ball of blow and drink a case of beer over a weekend and then like be good Monday through Friday and then, I do the same thing with you, but I can't stop Monday through Friday. You're like, you're just weak, dude. Like I quit it just fine. Um, And so I think some of it could, could come from that too. It's just a a place of misunderstanding because there's something different going on there. Again, like, I don't know. Um, uh, I'm not going to try to be a doctor either, but there's just something different. Something that I, I can't say I relate to. Personally, as an addict. Yeah. I can't relate to it, you know? Yeah, I've never been able to just stop like that. No, no. I mean, for short stints. <laughs> we can stop, we can't stay stopped. Yeah. Totally relate. Um, this one is pretty, yeah, this is just pretty straight to the point. Alcoholism isn't a disease, it's a choice. That's what we were talking about. Sorry, no, it's not a disease, it's a condition. You can't catch it. Typically, okay, I'm not even going to read that. You can't catch it. I can't finish that one now. Um, but I, I mean, I, I appreciate these people sharing their viewpoint because there is a reason that they feel this way. Absolutely. Regard, I mean, I'm not going to go through and, and analyze, you know, this person is saying this just because whatever, but they have reasons for their, their opinions. Um, and and I, I hate that this is not just an easy, we can all learn enough about it to feel safe. You know, I, I can't learn enough about it and feel safe, safe from myself and then safe from other people. Because now I have a really big community of friends who are just like me and I'm, you know, it's, it's a, it's a random thought that comes up into my head. Like who next? Yeah. The amount of people like since getting sober who are now six feet under is, is scary. Um, and like you said earlier, like people who I would have thought like, oh man, that guy's got it. Like he's on his stuff. He's doing his program. He's doing what he needs to do to stay sober. And then like, yeah, nope, he passed or she passed. Um, so, you know, it's, it's not something that, that can be taken lightly um, yeah. for us in recovery. You know, um, I think there's a lot of people just aren't a, aren't a aware of it and, you know, don't really know. But like um, people with long term sobriety are, are usually doing continual work on themselves, on their spiritual life. Um, you know, they usually have a strong recovery community of people that they can talk to, uh, without judgment, people that they can lean on. Um, it's not just this like, Oh, I went to rehab and now I'm normal. Right. Cause I thought that was going to be it. For oh me. my God. I was hoping such a letdown. Yeah. <laughs> I like, came out with the same feelings I had when I went in. Same. Yeah. I'm so glad that there was other addicts and alcoholics working at that treatment center who I could yeah. relate to on that level. Because I thought like, man, if I get the opiates if I, or opioids, the heroin out of my system, like I'll just be able to drink and smoke weed like Fresh a normal person. Yep. And they were like, Adam, tell me about how it was when you just drank and smoked weed. I'm like, well, my life was a shit show and I ran it into the <laughs> ground. I did the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. And they're like, okay, Adam, so how's it going to be different this time? Like, 
it's not. Yeah. <laughs> I should be sober from everything. Yeah. And thank God for those people. Yes. Because um, I would have. Like, I'm so perfectly capable yeah. still today of ruining my life rapidly. Like, yeah. Um, yeah. It's crazy. Well, this has been awesome. Yeah. Um, thank you for everyone that listened. If you would like to share any opinions in the chat, um, I don't promise we won't read them next podcast, but we'd love to hear what you think. And also you can send us a message at whiskey and milk on Instagram or TikTok with any ideas or any questions for either of us. Yeah. And if you're out there and you uh, want to be a guest or know anybody who might make a good guest, send them our way as well. Yes. All right. Till All right. next time. Attention. Now arriving at your destination. The last house on the block.